Hi, this is Sandy Simpson from Apologetics Coordination Team. Thank you for choosing one of our podcasts, and I hope that you enjoy it and it's a help to you. Using illustrations from culture to help people understand Jesus Christ can be a good idea. But getting people to worship false gods is not. Cultural illustrations can be helpful, but only if taught in the light of the true accounts in the written word. Putting cultural accounts on the same par as scripture by using the mythology of pagan nations to replace what needs to be taught about Jesus Christ and the true God degrades the Bible accounts, in fact, blasphemizes them. There's only one name under heaven by which men may be saved, and there's only one name of God revealed by God himself. Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. In Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Zechariah 14.9, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. You know, using the names of foreign gods, as the Bible calls them, is anathema to YHWH. Joshua 4, uh, 24, 23. Now then said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. With this in mind, <clears throat> let's look at Don Richardson's missiology paradigm. Richardson was a missionary in New Guinea starting in 1962, where he first started experimenting with his ideas later set forth in his 1984 book, Eternity in Their Hearts, such as finding a supreme being in indigenous cultures and then claiming that they'd always been worshiping the true God. Quote, Don Richardson, born 1935 as a Canadian Christian missionary teacher, author and international speaker who worked among the tribal people of Western New Guinea, uh, Indonesia, Richardson studied at the Prairie Bible Institute and the Summer Institute of Linguistics. In 1962, he and his wife, Carol, and their seven-month-old baby went to work among the Sawi tribe of what was then Dutch New Guinea in the service of the regions beyond missionary union. The Sawi were known to be cannibalistic headhunters. Now, in his book, Peace Child, he relates how he used the illustration of a peace child in the Sawi culture to help the people understand why Jesus Christ had been sent to mankind. Quote, after two months of reflection and questioning to learn more of the peace child custom, Richardson returned to talk with the elders of the Sawi villages. Uh, when I saw you exchange children, at first I was horrified, he began. I kept saying to myself, couldn't they make peace without this painful giving of a son? But you kept telling me there is no other way. He learned, leaned forward and in accordance with Saudi custom, placed his right palm down on the floor. You are right, he said. Every eye in the manhouse was fixed on him as he continued. 
When I stopped to think about it, I realized that your ancestors are not the only ones who found that peace required a peace child. Now, you know, if he had stopped there in this process and used this local illustration to teach the truth, truth about YHWH and his son, Jesus Christ, that would have been helpful. But you know what? He didn't. He goes on. Mayao Kodon, the spirit whose message I bear, has declared the same thing. True peace can never come without a peace child. There was silence. Because Mayao Kodon wants men to find peace with him and each other. He decided to choose a once-for-all peace child to establish peace forever. Whom did he choose, asked Mahayan. Richardson uh, answered with another question. Did Kayo give another man's son or his own? His own, they replied. And Mahayan, did you give another man's son of or your own? I gave my own, he replied, remembering uh, this, the pain. So did God, uh, Richardson replied, uh, so did God, Richard Richardson replied, uh, looking sideways at the wall with a sowy gesture, meaning, think about that. He opened an English Bible and read a part of Isaiah's prophecy in Sowy. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Mahayan looked at Richardson. Is he the one you've been telling us about? He is, Richardson replied softly. But you said a friend betrayed him. If Jesus was a peace child, it was the worst thing anyone could do to, to betray him, Mahayan uh, continued. The room was quiet. As he walked away, Richardson wondered about the future. He wanted to believe the Sawi could incorporate his message about Jesus Christ into their own traditions. Would the message of a once-for-all peace child be effective in changing the Sawi bent toward violence? And if it was, would the message be distorted beyond recognition? Now, I want to stop here and briefly explain that my family went out to the mission field in on the island of Palau in 1962 as well. We used to go to villages that had never heard the gospel before. The Palauans were also headhunters. But we had no problem preaching the gospel and people being saved. Richardson, on the other hand, couldn't get a convert until he made up these this new paradigm. Well, as you can see, Richardson did some teaching that was correct, but the error that would take over his future writings and research was to tell them that their God, Mayal Kodong, was the spirit that had given him this message he was declaring to them. Whether or not he made up this God or from the Sawi language or got it from a supreme being they were already worshiping is unclear. But Richardson then begins to build another narrative based partly on the Bible and partly on their traditions and culture. Later, Richardson helped translate the New Testament into Sawi. 
Quote, from this rare picture came the analogy of God's sacrifice of his own, his own son. The Sawi began to understand the teaching of the incarnation of Christ in the gospel after Richardson explained God to them in this way. Following this event, many villagers converted to Christianity. A translation of the New Testament and Sawi was published, and nearly 2,500 Sawi patients were treated by Carol. Well, guess what? This New Testament uses Mayo Kodong as the name for God. Mayo Kodong Sin Harai is the name of the New Testament in Sawi, a language spoken in uh, Merauke uh, region, uh, Irian Jaya province, Indonesia. Why did uh, Richardson take the somewhat helpful illustration of the peace child to another extreme. It was because he had not been having success preaching the gospel in the traditional way and was eager to ingratiate himself with the Sawi people. So he made up or found a supreme being from their culture and decided to use the name in place of YHWH. Quote, Richardson labored to show the Sawi uh, villagers a way that they could comprehend Jesus from the Bible, but the cultural barriers to understanding and accepting this teaching seemed impossible until an unlikely event brought the concept of the substitutionary atonement of Christ into immediate relevance for the Sawi. Quote, Don began to speak of Mayo Kondon, the supreme God who was all-powerful, who did not live in the trees or rivers, who was the one to whom they were all accountable. He respects no witchcraft and no fetish could keep him away from them. A look of defenselessness crept over their faces. Eventually, on later visits, he spoke of Jesus, Mayo Kodon's only son, who was betrayed by Judas. Richardson not only made up or picked out a supreme being from their culture, but also claimed that Mayo Kodon had a son, Jesus Christ. Once Richardson saw that this methodology pragmatically worked, he later set out to prove his thesis in many other cultures in eternity in their hearts and was appointed to the advisory board of Daniel Kakawa's Aloha Keakua, where Kakawa continues the same kind of narrative set in motion by Richardson many years earlier. But the ends of setting up a new religion for the Sawi people can never justify the means. The problem today is that they are now worshiping a god, quote unquote, by the name of Mayo Kodon, who had an alleged son he sent as a peace child, instead of worshiping the I am of the Bible who sent the second person of the Trinity to die on a cross for the sins of mankind. Mayo Kodon was never triune, so Richardson ends up teaching a type of tritheism instead of teaching who God really is. You know what? He also implies that God is pantheistic. Quote, I laid out a few notes on the mat in front of me and started in. First, I coined the name of God in Sawi, Mayo Kodon, the greatest spirit. Then I tried to describe him. I explained that he didn't live in just one submerged log or one sago palm, 
like like Sawi uh, Hamars, but instead filled the whole sky and the whole earth. In fact, I added, we're sitting here inside him right now. What a confusing mishmash of ideas can end up being presented when you get away from true Bible teaching. The Bible's quite clear, actually, that the Gentiles did not know God. They never knew God until they heard the gospel, the true gospel. Let's look at, look at some of those verses. Galatians 4.8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. 1 Corinthians 1.21. For since the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom, did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. 1 John 3, 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know uh, us is that it did not know him. Romans 1, 28. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. That's very straightforwardly talking about Babel. 1 Thessalonians 4, 5, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. <clears throat> Probably the strongest verse, Ephesians 2, 12 through 13. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from uh, citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. And finally, 2 Thessalonians 1.8, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So making up a name or using a name of a God they were worshiping was unbiblical. Many illustrations could be made from this, from, uh, of this from biblical accounts about not employing Richardson's method. Did Abraham claim that God who called him from Haran was the same as the God Baal of the Canaanites? Did Joseph, upon being taken to Egypt, tell the Pharaoh that they'd always been worshiping the true God by the name of Amen? Did Moses, after going to the mountain of God, come down and tell Israel that their worship of the golden calf was good because it was the same as the worship of YHWH? Did Joshua, in conquering the nations of Canaan, claim that Baal was the true God? Did Elijah test the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel for a good laugh because Baal was really the true God? Did Jonah tell the people of Nineveh to repent to their god El, who is not Elohim, but the consort of Athirat? Did David tell the Philistines to continue to worship the god Dagon because he was the same as YHWH? Did Daniel tell Nebuchadnezzar to, to continue the worship of Marduk as the one true God? Did Nehemiah ask the Persians to rebuild the temple as a tribute to their god, Ahura Mazda? Did Paul use a clever missiological technique by telling the Greeks that God is Zeus or the Romans that he is Jupiter 
for the Ephesians that he is embodied in Artemis. The only biblical example adherents of Richardson's mythology can find and try to use in claiming that the name of a supreme being can be used in the place of YHWH is Paul at the Areopagus. They try to claim that Paul used the name of a god of the Greeks to build a bridge to their culture. They claim that all cultures were created by God at Babel and sent out with the true knowledge and worship of God all over the world. Therefore, the Greeks already knew God through general revelation. But Paul's oratory at the Areopagus was entirely consistent with his teachings that the Gentiles did not know God, which I cited above. You know what? The Bible's not inconsistent. You have to not only look at the immediate context of a scripture, but at the whole counsel of God's word. Paul said this, Acts 17.23, For as I walked around and looked carefully at your object, objects of worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. This altar was built, among many others, to try to appease any god in case an epidemic or other catastrophe affected Athens. Barnes' New Testament notes uh, states that an altar had been erected in Athens during the time of pestilence some 600 years before Christ because all the other known and named gods could not deliver them. Paul came and used this altar to illustrate that they did not know God at all, saying him I declare to you. In other words, uh, quote, I make known to you his name, attributes, etc. In other circumstances, it might seem to be presumptuous for an unknown Jew to attempt to instruct the sages of Athens, but here they, they had confessed and proclaimed their ignorance. By rearing this altar, they acknowledged their need of instruction. The way was therefore fairly open for Paul to address even these philosophers and to discourse to them on a point on which they acknowledged their ignorance. And that's from Bard's New Testament notes. An unknown God, quote unquote, means they were worshiping something unknown, not known. John Gill Expositor states, God is an unknown God to those who have only the light of nature to guide them. For though it may be known by it and that there is a God, and that there is but one, and somewhat of him may be discerned thereby, yet the nature of his essence, the perfections of his nature, the unity of his being, are very little and not truly and commonly understood, and the persons of the Godhead not at all and still less God in Christ, whom to know is life eternal. Hence, the Gentiles are described as such who know not God. Quote, in Athens, there was a temple specifically de dedicated to that God, and very often Athenians would swear in the name of the unknown God. Um, Apollodorus, Philostratus, um, and pa Pausanias uh, wrote about the unknown God as well. 
the unknown God was not so much a specific deity, but a placeholder for whatever God or gods actually existed, but whose name and nature were not revealed to the Athenians or the Hellenized world at large. You know what? They did not know this God. Therefore, they called it the unknown God. This was not a known God by the name of Theos, as Richardson and his adherents claim, which is, Theos is a generic term for deity, but it's, it's an unknown deity. But the word Theos is a generic term for deity and can be applied to both male or female deities. Uh, the word Theos means a god or goddess, a general name of deities or divinities. Paul used this unknown Theos as a, a, an example to start the conversation of introducing them to the true God. What he did not do, which Richardson does, is put this unknown God in the Greek scriptures. He used the generic term Theos as well as the true titles of God. Quote, the usage of God in the New Testament is a translation of Theos, the general Greek word for deity. Also, almost universally, Lord is a translation of Kurios, the general Greek word for a master. This practice is what those who wrote the New Testament used. They didn't insert words for specific supreme beings in the Bible, such as Zeus, because that would have been considered blasphemous. Yet, this is what Richardson did and what many Bible translation societies do today. You can read my uh, article called Blasphemizing the Bible at this address for more information, and you're going to be shocked if you haven't heard about it. So it was really Richardson who worked with SIL before going to the mission field, who came up with the idea of putting the names of supreme beings in Bible translations since he began that process back in 1962. It's true that liberal denominations who had previously split on the issue of inerrancy and authority of scripture were already discussing ways to syncretize Christianity as the Roman Catholic Church had already been doing for centuries. But it was Richardson who brought it into Bible-believing evangelical thinking. Later in his book, Eternity in Their Hearts, he continued this idea by mythologizing myths from many cultures and making up an entirely false narrative on a number of Bible passages and characters, such as Job and Melchizedek. And you can read an excellent review of that book from my competitor's site, letusreason.org. Hi, this is Sandy Simpson again. Thank you for listening to one of our podcasts. You can come to my website, Apologetics Coordination Team at deceptioninthechurch.com or go to our YouTube site called ACT TV and check out our DVDs and books, etc. Thank you so much for checking us out.